everyone. Today, before we listen to the latest episode of the Bighorn Podcast, I would like to address the issue of these challenging times that we continue to try and navigate, not only throughout the world, but more importantly here at Bighorn, we all have to be responsible. We are so close because the vaccine is coming, even though it's not coming in the manner and in the speed that we would like it to happen. We're so close to having people vaccinated and have some control over this virus that we've been fighting for almost a year. As it relates to Bighorn, and very rarely during this podcast do I give opinions, but I also believe because we are so close, it is extremely important that we all do the things that are necessary to keep ourselves and the rest of our community safe and healthy. Part of that is common sense. It's still important to wear masks, to socially distance, to practice good hygiene. Those are the three elements that have been standard since we started and still apply. I also believe, however, that as a nation and even a community, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I still believe personally that sitting outside and having something to eat with four people you're safer than if you're in your house with a party of eight or ten. So common sense, again, will dictate how we get through this. We cannot be reckless. We are so close. We often talk that there are a lot of developments, but we also have been so proud that we are a community, a community that cares about each other, a community that together we can have our own safe bubble. But it's up to us. We have to make sure that we treat our community as such. And we have to make sure that whether you're new to our community or a guest in our community or a longtime member, we need to protect each other. This is not a Four Seasons Hotel. This is a community, a community that has standards to maintain our place as the greatest club in not just the United States, but in the world. But it is up to us to do the things necessary for us to maintain those standards. We have to make sure that we pick up after each other. We make sure that we have to be careful. We make sure that we take care of this asset that we have called Bighorn. So I talk to you today about the fact that we need to be even more diligent at this time, look out after each other, and make sure we're all doing the right things to protect ourselves, our family, and our community. This doesn't mean that we can't have a lot of fun, that we can't smile at each other, that we can't uh, uh, visit, that we can't say hello, that we can't enjoy all of the benefits that we still have here at our community. Before Mr. Hubbard passed, we used to talk about the fact that this is quarantine heaven. If you've got to be someplace during these difficult times, someplace where the weather is this good and the options are this great, is something that we should absolutely treasure and be thankful for. So I hope you join with me and the rest of our community to making sure that we move forward in a really positive way because I still believe that we are really close. And if we can hang together and do the right things, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train coming our way. So now we're going to play the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast. 
And I so appreciate the positive comments that we've had, especially during these times, about how these stories continue to inspire, continue to make us close as a community. And I really appreciate those comments. We'll now do an introduction for the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, talking to interesting people with extraordinary stories. My name is Marty Lockman, your host for these conversations that highlight accomplished and fascinating people of our Bighorn community. And these stories about the various twists and turns that brought them to this point in their journey. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. Today's guest is Ross Grieve, a member at Bighorn since 2003. And among Ross's accomplishments is being named Consumer Choice Businessman of the Year and 2008 Leadership Award from the Hill School of Business at the University of Regina, University of Alberta Canadian Business Leader of the Year, Alberta Venture Magazine's Alberta's Business Person of the Year, and Canada's Outstanding CEO of the Year. Ross became Vice Chairman of the Board of PCL Construction Holdings in 2016 after a long and distinguished career with PCL. But as we do with all of our guests, let's go back to the start in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and share with us, Ross, how your story began. Well, thank you, Marty, and thanks for the opportunity to be part of this uh, series of uh, podcasts. I feel very honored to uh, follow people like R.D. and Lee Trevino and my good friend Mac Van Willigan and others. It's an interesting objective you have for people here at Bighorn to share their story with others, hopefully to help others in their life challenges. I don't really think my life is all that interesting, but there's hopefully a few nuggets in here that people will find interesting and maybe helpful. If I may, I'd just like to give you the real high fly as to who I am. I'm a, I'm a 72-year-old man who is a Canadian. My principal residence is Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I've been here at Bighorn since 03, as you mentioned. I'm married to Kathy. I have two sons, Noah and Matthew and five grandkids. Yeah, I got a civil engineering degree at the University of Manitoba, graduated in 1969, and that's where I spent the first 25 years of my life in Winnipeg. I spent my entire career, in fact, it was a 50-year anniversary this past year, the 115-year-old private general contractor that used to be called pool construction that changed to PCL construction, which it uh, was under today. I uh, started as a surveyor, and I became eventually the CEO for 12 years, then chairman of the board, and now I step back to vice chair. So that's, that's sort of the real short version of, of, of who I am. Digging into the detail a bit, my story of life isn't all that unique. I've listened to the other people who have, have participated in these podcasts, and everybody's life has similarities and a lot of differences and a lot of great highlights and a lot of uh, bumps along the way. Mine is no, no different. It's a lot of, life is a lot about being at the right place in the right time. And life events certainly affect you and those around you to uh, extreme extents and really chart the outcome of who you really get to be. So anyway, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and that is just a little north of North Dakota for my American friends. I was born into a working-class family. My father was a traveling salesman. My mother was a secretary. My grandparents came from Scotland. That was the lineage. I have a younger sister, nine years younger, and we had a very loving family, and it was a great household to be raised in. It wasn't perfect. My dad uh, was an alcoholic. For the first nine years of my life, he was drinking, and there was 
a lot of things that I recall about being a young boy in that environment that I think really did shape who I ultimately became. My dad was a wonderful man, and he quit drinking when my sister was born, so when I was nine. And he participated in AA, and he didn't, uh, didn't drink again. I admired him for that. The point being, it, it made me a good boy because I wanted to be a good boy because the environment at home wasn't always uh, great. And I wanted to be good to help my mom and my dad. And so I wanted to please. I did things to try to please them and make them proud. So that shaped me to get going as a, a young fellow that worked all the time, as some of the other bloggers uh, have said they've had paper routes where they delivered papers and you rode around on your bike and you collected money and you fought the uh, Canadian winter doing it and that was uh, a growing up experience. Cut a lot of grass, washed a lot of cars, served gas to boats on the river, the Red River that was behind our house. So I worked. At school I was a good student. I wasn't a fantastic student, but I did okay. I was relatively popular, so I had friends. I strove in my desire to please. I was like the class president of in high school. I was a quarterback on the football team, played a lot of sports. And i got to mention this. Every year, people from our high school got picked by a big department store called Eaton's, which was a national store in Canada. They had a junior executive program, and they picked a young man and a young woman in grade 12 to get involved with other young folks from other schools around the city. And you were given a job for Friday nights and Saturdays. You were given a black blazer with a crest on it and gray pants, and you uh, interacted with all these other young people, and they would have speakers. They were teaching you about business and about uh, leadership. But there was the obligation that you had to work, and they didn't pay you very much. And you had to be in the Eaton's Christmas Parade and be a giraffe or whatever. But I thought it was a great program for a company to put on for the young people in the city. And I learned stuff from that experience. You know, I was a, a pretty normal guy. I, had, I was very parochial. I, I had, uh, our family didn't have means. We didn't travel very much. I had no great ambition. I never thought I would leave Winnipeg. That was my home. That's where my parents were, my friends were, and relatives were, and that was, that was life. So I wasn't worldly and never thought I would be and never thought about it, really, because I was just sort of a happy guy. Then the things started to happen. I talked earlier about bumps along the way. Well, when I was about 17, my best friend and I were going down to his lake cottage for the weekend to meet other friends, and we were met there by the... Uh, what we call the Mounties in Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, greeted us when we got to the lake and we found out that his brother Brian had been killed uh, in a car accident the night before. So that was really the first big shock of life to, to you know, have a friend die. So this is all part of the growing up part of the story, I suppose. So. You know, we all uh, dealt with that, moved on. That took me to uh, my university days. So, as I said, I was a decent student in high school, but my high school counselor, when I was trying to decide, you know, where to go to university, what faculty to go into, I said that I was considering engineering, and he said, you should absolutely not be an engineer. <laughs> that you, that wasn't for me, it wasn't my character, and... Uh, Nonetheless, I uh, made the decision to go into civil engineering, largely at the prompting of my wonderful mother, who played cards, played bridge, with a woman called Mary, who had a son that was in engineering, and he was really doing good. And so I should go into engineering. So that, that actually had a factor into uh, why I chose engineering as opposed to something else. I didn't know what I wanted to do, quite frankly. So that started me off uh, on, a, on that four-year journey. I did graduate, but significantly along the way, each summer, for three summers, I worked for a company called Manitoba Hydro. And that was the big utility in Manitoba that looked after all of the hydroelectric power development, the big uh, 
dams on all the rivers. There's a lot of, a lot of water in Manitoba, a lot of big rivers and waterfalls and things like that that you can capture power through power turbines. So me and my friend, Al, we knew how to survey because we were taught that in first year engineering. So we got hired as surveyors and off we went. So we would leave for five months. We would leave right after school finished and we'd come back just before uh, university started and we would go into northern Canada, uh, northern Manitoba specifically, and we worked in the bush. And boy, talk about growing up fast. So we were working on uh, survey crews with old crusty career surveyors that uh, knew how to do everything. I learned so much. We took freighter canoes down rivers. We shot rapids. We flew around in anything known to man. We are every kind of aircraft on floats, we flew in it. And uh, helicopters, and it was just, uh, for a young man, this was just a real eye-opener because you were living in camps with camp cooks and you were working with our, our um, First Nations folks. Uh, they, were, they were part of our crews. You became friends with them and uh, you lived with them and you played crib with them. And uh, so you learned a lot about life and other people's lives. So that was, uh, those three summers were very, very developmental for me because I took on more and more responsibility. I became a, went from being a rod man and a chain man to being an instrument man and then a party chief. And I took on more and more responsibility and found that I enjoyed it. I liked working with people. I think I learned a lot about how you work with people and how you, how you lead people. So, uh, but then came another bump one day. We were uh, shooting a rapids in a freighter canoe. I was actually on land portaging the, the stuff that we had, all of our equipment, and we were watching a couple of the guys from the crew shoot these rapids, and one was a guy, a uh, First Nations fellow called Jack, and, the, and the, it flipped, and he got caught in the keeper, which is a, a big sort of, a, sort of like a whirlpool, and he drowned. And then right in the middle of nowhere, we had to, by radio telephone, get a hold of the Mounties again. And then we had to drag for them for four days to try to find them. And so that was another sort of smack on the side of the head about mortality and life. So a lot of growing up. That was, uh, you know, a fascinating three summers. And university was fun. You know, it was... uh, a lot of work. Engineering's not easy, but we had a lot of camaraderie. I joined a fraternity and, you know, there was a lot of good times there. What I did learn, I'd like to mention that I learned a lot about the First Nations folks, their plight, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, how they, um, they're challenged to live in the environment that they have been largely put in in the past and you know they they were they were just wonderful to get to know and wonderful to be friends with uh, sure they had their issues their social issues and there was people in those communities that struggled and whatnot but it really gave me a, an appreciation for the challenges that first nations people have in canada and perhaps in the u.s i'm not as familiar i just like to say there, there was another bump along the way my cousin was getting married in a place called Saskatoon, and all of the family was driving there together for her wedding. And my family that lived in a place called Kelowna, British Columbia, were driving there and got in a horrific accident on the way to the wedding. And two of my uncles, one of my aunts, uh, were killed. And another aunt uh, went into a six-month coma and was messed up, and the cousin was what messed up. But it was, it was just a shock that these kind of things can happen in life. And, you know, you're going to a party, and then we had a, you know, a mass funeral uh, to deal with. The wedding went ahead, believe it or not. But it was another just shock in my early 20s that, oh, my God, you just don't know what's around the corner. And, you know, it had a hell of an impact on my dad because this was... Uh, you know, a couple of his sisters. And so there, another bump along the way. Let me just ask you too, Ross. You know, a lot of these, we talk about twists and turns, and I don't want to interrupt your flow, but whether it be being picked at Eaton's, uh, your dad's bout with alcoholism, these tragedies that occurred that had to bring up 
mortality each time and a real caring about living every day because you never know what's going to be around the corner. You're only in your 20s now and you've lived a full life in some respects and you really had to grow up quicker than maybe otherwise because of these events. This molds you for the future, I'm sure. You're about to get into the business part of it, but you've led a full life up to this time and you said... You weren't particularly worldly, but you became worldly in a very quick way. Very good observation. And uh, for sure, all of that uh, led to the next stage of my life and, and set the stage for something that I would never have believed could occur, which was you know, getting into the working world, really growing up. That's absolutely, it it set the stage for sure. You know, after my mother kept encouraging me to follow her friend Mary's son's footsteps, she encouraged me to go and see if I could get a job with pool construction because Mary's son was working there, and he was a couple of years further on than me. So remarkably, I applied to Pool Construction, which was uh, at that time an Edmonton-based company, but had work in Winnipeg. It was actually had work on our campus while I was writing exams in my fourth year. I was looking out the window and watching Pool Construction build a big building. So I went and applied to this company, largely because of my mother, and I got a job working for Mary's son, Frank. So... Here we go. So I started as a, uh, a surveyor field engineer in downtown Winnipeg on a very large uh, mixed-use project. I didn't know anything about construction, but I knew how to survey. So that was what I did. I worked on a project. It was a uh, parking structure, which had a massive, deep excavation. I got on that project right at the beginning, and I was thrown into the hole with the guys. And I'll say guys, because they were all guys. So this was carpenters and laborers, and and these uh, wonderful tradespeople, and the superintendents and foremen that knew how to build stuff. And so off I went. Through trial and error, I I managed to uh, participate in the construction of that parking structure. I did make some errors as a surveyor, and I heard jackhammers taking out concrete afterwards, but I never made that mistake again. But I, I learned a lot real fast again, because I was working with you know highly skilled, wonderful tradespeople that took the time to teach me about the business. So, you know how you cut steel and how you drive a bobcat and all you do, all, all this stuff that I had no idea. He, these guys could do it and they would show me. I was very lucky uh, to get uh, uh, with this particular company because that company at that time, you know, it was founded in 1906 and uh, uh, it, it really is an amazing company. And before I get into into my my story at, at PCL, I should just give you a quick overview. So it, it, it was a company that started in 1906 by a guy called Ernie Poole. He was a, a carpenter. He started a little company in southern, southern Saskatchewan, which is in the center of Canada. It's a prairie area. He started building some farmhouses and whatnot. And then over the years, he moved his office around Canada and eventually uh, set up a head office in Edmonton in 1932. But the, the real story is that, you know, today, that company is doing $9 billion a year across North America, and some work in Australia and Caribbean. But it's just an amazing success story of how this little company started with not much uh, other than, you know, a desire to succeed. And it's, it's turned into an amazing success story that's still going on today. So that's the company I had joined. And when I joined it, Ernie Poole had already passed away, so I never met him. But I met his two sons that were the owners at that time. And they had a president called Bob Stallery, who was the guy that was really driving the company. And to put it in context, when I, when I joined them in Winnipeg, they were just in Western Canada, and they would be doing maybe $200 million a year in 1969. 
and they were diversified sectorally and geographically. So they worked in different provinces, different cities, and they did commercial buildings, they would do highways, they would do you know, some uh, dams and, you know, they, they did anything, anything they could do to make a buck. You know, big jobs, small jobs, didn't matter where it was. They were a self-performer. They weren't a broker, so they hired their own trades, tradespeople that would, you know, uh, build the structures, do the formwork, uh, pour the concrete, finish the concrete. They had people that did all that. And they really were wonderful people uh, with wonderful values and really understood to be successful, you had to look after people, and they were very, very good to their people and loyal to their people, and, and the reverse was true. You know, people loved working for these people. So I, that's what I fell into. I fell into this wonderful, comp- wonderful company who promoted from within, was really their MO, and they'd watch young people like myself and, you know, see that there might be some opportunity to advance me and give me more responsibility, and that's what they did. They kept throwing more and more at us young people and particularly myself and I went from being the surveyor to being a junior project manager and having projects of my own that I would have to oversee small ones and then there was bigger ones and then I would take on some regional responsibility and so they they just moved you along in your career quite rapidly but that was just great experience because I was working with the old superintendents learning about problem solving and deadlines negotiation with architects engineers owners all of the above there's a lot of conflict in the contracting business so there was just a lot of people interaction Uh, so you learned about people skills Uh, you learned about leadership you learned about what motivates, what doesn't motivate. And so it was just a wonderful start of my career for the first, say, 10 years. I just, just on a rapid learning curve, and they uh, would put me in charge of a school up in the Arctic at Eskimo Point. You'd fly into this place on the west side of Hudson's Bay, and in the wintertime, you'd land on the ice, and, you know, the Inuit people would pick you up on a dog sled, and you would go into the hamlet, and then you would stay in these little little huts for a couple of days with the rest of the guys and participate in building a school. Uh, but it was just another, for a young man, another great experience about logistics, about different cultures, about working under really tough conditions, and there's a lot of problem solving in those kind of opportunities. And this doesn't happen by accident, because we've had other podcasts to touch on exactly what you're talking about. People only are given jobs that other people believe that they can handle. And so you have to always be that person that you want them to come to you. You want them to ask you to do these things. And you have to be willing to go anywhere and do anything, knowing full well that that's how you're going to. Yes, they gave you the responsibility, but if you don't act on that, if you don't succeed, you don't get those opportunities. So you have to be willing and able to go ahead and and do whatever is asked of you. Well, that's very, very true. And uh, I I must have telegraphed that to them in some way. Uh, I think they knew I was ambitious and I was becoming more self-confident in myself as these years went by. And I had some track record of, call it success. Um, and I think I'd started to become a little bit competitive. So you're right. I think I, I wanted to get, you know, the, the, the cool job or whatever. And um, uh, so it, it, uh, my, my, my character was changing uh, because of all of that. And then um, <laughs> what was really significant, and this is what really changed me, is that one day one of my bosses came into town from Edmonton and we went to a conference and he was sitting beside me and he said, uh, absolutely shocked me. He said, Ross, we want you to move to Toronto. I said, what? You know, Toronto, like, I'm in Winnipeg. I live in Winnipeg, you know, and uh, uh, I just got married. I was uh, like 25 years old. And uh, you want me to go to Toronto? Well, uh, I thought about it and talked to others about it. And 
the, the key part of the story is I actually went home and got an atlas to see where Toronto was because I'd never been there. I sort of knew where it was, but I, I had to look it up. So with great reluctance, I said yes. And so they, they had an office in Toronto that was winding down on, on work. They had work uh, in the Maritimes out of Toronto in a place called Halifax. Uh, they had work in near the border near Buffalo, uh, you know, in a wastewater treatment plant. They had a couple of projects west of Toronto that were shopping centers and stuff. And so we had a small operation there, and I was, I was told to go there and take it over and clean up the, the remnant works. So I went there. Boy, did I grow up quick, because I, I went to this big city that probably at the time had 6 million people. I didn't know anybody. I was the same company, but your identity changes. They're all new architects, all new people that are your employees. Everything's new. And you went from being a kid from the Canadian prairies to being in this big, sophisticated city. Now I'm dealing with rock star architects, you know, going to meetings downtown and the big buildings and, you know, sort of saying, Jesus, am I out of my scope? But I learned how to survive. Actually, I think that that was just a huge life event to physically move from one comfortable environment into a very scary environment, if you want to call it that. And I probably worked too hard because my my marriage did fail there. Um, luckily, no children. Nonetheless, when I when I turned 30, I was single. And I remember sitting in, I was actually in Quebec City on, in, on my birthday in July, and I looked at the St. Lawrence River and I said, hmm, I wonder what life's got in store for me now as I turned 30. So I was single, living in Toronto, running around uh, the eastern part of Canada, building stuff. While I was there, and this is another very significant uh, part of my life, when I, I got a call one night, remember that this is a family-owned company. The Poole family owned, owned the company. I got a phone call one night to go to the airport and pick up a parcel. And in that parcel was going to be a bunch of documents that were going to require me to be in Edmonton on Saturday morning. This was like a Thursday. And I wasn't told why. It's just be in Edmonton on Saturday morning. So I get this pile of paper at midnight on Thursday and I read it and gosh, the company's being sold. Bob Stollery, the president of the day, was leading a management buyout from the Poole family to buy the company. And I was being invited to be a participant. So he had decided to bring his managers of the day, and there was 24 of them, and I was the youngest, just a junior manager that just made a manager. So long story short, we bought the company. I think I got 0.64% of the company, but I, nonetheless, I bought some stock. So we became an employee-owned company in 1977. Another little anecdote, and this is about friendship in your life. So I'm in Edmonton on the Saturday morning, having signed that I'm going to buy into this company. Didn't understand almost anything. You know, I just got in line with everybody else, signed up, said, yeah, okay, I'm in. And I had to come up with 8000 bucks. I didn't have $8,000. My parents didn't have $8,000. But I had just told them that I was going to get them $8,000. So I flew back to Winnipeg to see my folks. While there, I went to a beer parlor with my friend Bob, who owned the hotel. And I'm sitting there with my friend Bob, who's a lifelong friend. And I'm telling him the story. And he said, Ross, you got to buy, buy those shares. You just got to buy those shares. I said, geez, well, I don't, I don't have the money. He got up, true story. He got up, left me in the beer parlor for about 10 minutes, came back with a brown paper bag with $8,000 in it. He had gone to the vault in the hotel, got me 8,000 bucks. And he said, you pay me back oh, when you can. So I did. Fortunately... I was able to pay him back within about a year because this was a highly leveraged deal. And my real investment, uh, I won't get into the detail of it, but my real investment, capital investment, was 800 bucks out of the 8000 mm-hmm. That $800 went up 2,000 times. That was my, my friend Bob helped, helped me to become an employee owner. So story goes on. The company really went on a growth spurt uh, as an employee-owned company. 
Uh, Bob Stoller was a wonderful leader, a very courageous leader. He immediately realized that picking 24 people was problematic because he had a lot of old timers that were working for him for a long, long time that were very disappointed they weren't included in the first group. So he started immediately divesting uh, his shares to bring in more and more employees. And so uh, today, uh, the company is 100% employee owned. 85% of the salaried people own shares in the company. You have to be working for the company to own shares. And when you leave, you have to sell shares back to Treasury. The company is, uh, since, what is that, 40 years or so, uh, since it became employee-owned, has made profit, very good profit, every year uh, since that time. So the, the employee ownership model for this now huge construction company is, is magic. And for me to have been the CEO for 12 years, uh, best job on the planet, you know, because everybody loved being there. Everybody was making a lot of money because they were profit sharing. You know, my my executive team wasn't getting poached. And, you know, it was just a, a real great model and still is a great model. When you come in and take over a company like this, because this is always fascinating to me, you want to maintain the same culture, I would assume. You want to retain the same standards. That's not as easy as sometimes people think to take over a successful entity. Now, what was your philosophy at the time? Well, I've got to wind back the story a little bit. Um, so after my Toronto experience and, you know, getting divorced and whatnot, um, I got moved from Toronto back to headquarters in Edmonton for a period of time. Then I got moved into a, a place called Regina, Saskatchewan, which was like a real MBA in construction because I was the boss in this small operation, small population area, but got to do every kind of project uh, imaginable, got to meet the mayor, the premier, everybody, you know, they were always around. So you, you got to learn about business, you learned about, you know, community, you learned about philanthropy and you were a big deal in a small pond, right? So uh, that was really a good experience. And I got moved there from there back to Edmonton and then back to Toronto and then back to Edmonton. The reason for that was more bumps along the way. Uh, I never, ever aspired to be the CEO. I would never in my wildest dreams thought that I would have ever had that job. But we had two CEOs die in office. One at age 47, one at age 54. And all of a sudden, I'm getting fast-tracked up the, uh, the executive chain because of these, these events. Because it was 1997, I pulled into my parking spot in Edmonton at the headquarters, and I looked around, and I said, where'd everybody go? You know, I had the best parking spot. You know, I was the CEO. And I was like, I can't believe that this has happened, but it happened. So when you talk about culture, this company has been a success because they had a, a, a very deep culture. They, they worked hard. They had integrity. We never messed around. Like the, the, that kind of business, there's all sorts of games that can be played. You can, you can be bad in that business and, and absolutely not in this company. Everybody... It was, you did it right, and you looked after your customer, and if you screwed up, you fixed it at, on your, out of your wallet. So it was, you know, the place has, has a great reputation, and people like working for winners. And, and the, the story of how the Poole family operated and how they looked after their people got perpetuated to the newer executives and leaders and certainly me because I saw so much of it I worked hard to perpetuate the rich history and the culture of the company because I knew that was magic that you know that, that's that's uh, that's an asset and if if I may I'd like to share something we it ties into the culture story because um The Poole brothers, one of the Poole brothers, came into the office one day and he said, they, with a handwritten piece of paper, saying, just found this in, uh, you know, some box somewhere, but this, my dad wrote this in somewhere in the 40s. 
he gave it to us, and we looked at it, and, and we've named it Poole's Rules. And if I can, I will read to you what, what Ernie wrote in the 40s. He said, contracting is an interesting and risky business, and for success along long term requires strict adherence to sound business basic principles, a few of which are listed below. Employ highest grade people obtainable. Encourage integrity, loyalty, and efficiencies. Avoid sidelines. Do not permit sidelines by employees. Be fair in all dealings with owners, architects, engineers, and subcontractors. Keep your word as good as your bond. Give encouragement and show appreciation. Be firm, fair, and friendly. Avoid jobs where design is not good or financing doubtful. Let your competitors have these. I love that one. Good accounting and cash keeping are essential. And do not let finishing up jobs or collecting payments lag. So he wrote that down in the 1940s. So we tagged this pool's rules. We made it into posters and we got it splattered all over our job shacks. And, you know, today you can still see pool's rules. And I, I think our people love it. You know, it, it connects them to uh, the company's roots and everything that he wrote down there stands today. So I hope that answers your question about how when I took the uh, top spot, I was already, I had PCL branded on my backside and fly, flew the gold, gold and green color. And, you know, I was, uh, I had drank the uh, Kool-Aid. That's sort of my, I guess, the business side of it. When I got to about 2009, or getting close to 2009, I, I realized that I had to make a decision about succession. So I advised people that I was going to step down when I was 62, and I, uh, I did implement a succession plan, handed off the uh, CEO job to one of the younger executives that had been working with me for a long time, and he took over as CEO, and I became chairman. I did that for his tenure as, uh, as CEO. And when he stepped down as CEO, to, we gave him the chairman title, and I stepped back to vice chairman, and I'll be, another year or so, I'll be gone uh, from the board. But I'm still connected to the company, and uh, to me, it's like a soap opera. I, I love the business. Uh, I think it's, I should have said that, that I think the contracting business is just a fabulous business. And interesting business for young people to get into it's it's challenging it's fast moving you've got a product you get to see what you've been working on you're working in teams and you're it you never get bored it's just a a wonderful uh, environment i'd encourage uh, young people to really take a look at the construction industry whether it's at the trades level or executive level or or support level whatever it's just a great business and you have to be passionate about whatever it is that you do, and you obviously are. I know also, Ross, that family is a big part of your life, too. Um, can you just touch a little bit about that and how the balance of that is, although especially when we're younger, tough to do, but as we get older, I think we have a greater appreciation for that. Well, for sure. Um, I, I couldn't have done this uh, without... My wife Kathy and and our family that we 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 made. Um, I uh, I dragged her. I met her, uh, you know, in my early thirties, and uh, she had been married before and they had a young son. So uh, we got together when we went to Regina, and she's been with me ever since. And she's just been a, a wonderful person to be with and uh, you know she's taught me so much and um, built a family uh, environment that supported me being real busy and away a lot and I had to travel a lot and uh, you know she kept everything going and you know we've we've had a wonderful life together and uh, you know we've got the grandkids now and so it's just you know family is uh is so important. She's got two brothers, two sisters. Uh, we've all lost our parents now, but you know we're we're very close uh, as a family, and 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 we work hard at that. And I, uh, you know, I, I think it's a standard 
statement that most people will make, but, you know, family and friends and health are really what it's all about. All the rest of it is sort of gingerbread, you know. So, uh, yeah, family's pretty damn important. A couple of questions, too, for you. Um, who has had the greatest, or who, what people have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, I like the second part of the question because I knew you were going to ask it. And, uh, <laughs> and trying to uh, narrow it down to one person would be really, really difficult, you know. But it's, it's, it's a scatter of, you know, my parents for sure. Uh, had a lot, of inf- a lot of influence on me. And some of my bosses at, at, uh, at Poole and PCL, uh, certainly Kathy. So it's been it's been a number of people, Marty, and I think you become what your environment has made you become. What I'm trying to say is that I think I I'm a good watcher. I I am a good listener. So all along my journey, whether it was on the professional or personal side, I was always watching and observing things that I liked and I didn't like. And I think I've tried to emulate things I like and try to stay from away from the things I didn't like, whether it's in friendships or in business or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, um, I've, I've had some wonderful people to interact with and I've taken away the good, the bad and the ugly from all of them. And, uh, and it sort of made me, that's who Ross is today is sort of the product of all these people. Now, I know that you're winding down your professional career a bit. But still, with all your accomplishments, what drives you today? Because you're still a very passionate individual uh, about the company, about the future. What does drive you today? Well, I think it, I'm, a, I'm pragmatic. I, I get it that I'm 72, and I get it that I'm not connected the way I used to be in the, in the business uh, world. So I'm winding back my obligations on the various boards that I've been serving on because I think it's time, it's the right thing to do. I made a decision uh, 10 years ago to retire because I got hit with a bunch of health issues. I've got two replacement hips, I've had prostate cancer, I've had a minor stroke and uh, et cetera. Um, I'm in pretty good health today and so I'm driven to be around for a while and to be around healthily so I can enjoy my family and my friends and Bighorn. And so I'm driven to, um, you know, try to live a good, healthy life now. And I'm really glad I stepped down when I did. That was enough. Uh, The career was a wonderful one, but it's very stressful. And uh, I'm lucky because I can handle stress pretty good. Uh, But, you know, there was certain to be some signs that you're mortal and, uh, you know, you got to move on. So I'm driven today by uh, friends and family and health. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, um, I, like this weekend, as an example, uh, I, I've belonged to an organization called YPO, Young President's Organization, since I was 40 years old. And, um, and now we're old president's organization or whatever you want to call it. But this weekend, there's seven couples... Uh, are gathering here in Palm Desert and we're going to, you know, from the YPO world and seven of my my mates uh, along with their partners and spouses and, and we're just going to have a wonderful weekend here and, you know, I live for stuff like that. YPO has been a fabulous organization, big part of my life, allowed me to grow professionally and personally. We've traveled around the world. We met wonderful people. It's a, It's a great organization for young people uh, to get involved with, to be able to share business experiences and challenges and, and learn. And, uh, you know, I think that was their mantra, is better, better presidents through education. So that, that's been a big part of my life for the last 30 years as YPO because uh, of the friends and, and contacts that I've made and the networking contacts that I made. When I moved down to Toronto, um, big city uh the second time i went down there i came down there as a member of ypo and i met 150 uh you know bosses of of that part of the world like right away and it was just a wonderful entry into a a new market what a support system for sure oh fabulous yeah 
Yeah. You talked at the start. You were nice enough to talk at the start about these podcasts and not only um, inform people about one's life, but also lessons about business and life itself, which leads to another two questions. And that is, what qualities do you look for in people that worked with you? Well, a lot of people, when they choose their universities or their post-secondary education or whatever, are going for the Ivy League, uh, big-name um, places. I guess when I hired people, I wasn't all that impressed about where they went to school. I would be more impressed about, you know, what are they really like? You know, are they, it was more their personality. Are they, uh, do they have a personality? Have they got interpersonal skills? Are they smart enough? Can they learn? You can teach people stuff, right? Uh, but you, can, you can't teach people some behavioral things. And uh, so I look for people that are really good personalities, interpersonally sharp, people you want to be around, people that look like they can lead and have people want to work with them and have the the ability to work hard and take on tough situations and work through tough negotiations and problem solve. So I'm I'm looking for people that have that equipment and it's not doesn't necessarily come with a degree. You know, it's not necessarily the degree that gives you that. It's uh it's how you lived your life, you know, were you involved in sports? Are you a good team player? Are you um, you know, do people like you? Uh, those are some of the qualities I must say that overrode overrode a lot when I was looking to uh, hire somebody. I'll tell you, I've been applauded a lot for the the record of PCL during my tenure there as CEO. And I can say this so honestly is that once I became the CEO, when I the team that I wanted to be running with because I knew them all but they weren't all necessarily uh, in the places I thought they should be but I picked probably six guys that were superstars that were just guys that I knew could make me look good and I assembled them got them into the right place and uh coached them a little bit and told them what their boundaries were and what uh, what we were looking to get from them. Tried to get them all to like each other and support each other and work as a team. And it worked magically because in 1997, when I took the job as CEO, the, we had just come off a recessionary period and the economy was taken off. Well, I had all of these superstar guys in my executive suite and they were just chomping at the bit and we just took off. We went from I think uh, that year we were about a billion and a half and we took it up to $6 billion uh, in no time. And it was because of this team. And uh, so I think, you know, that's that's a big part of success in business is, you know, get the right people in the right place. And that second part's important because, you know, people can be good, but they could be underdeployed or in the wrong place or simply not exploited for the talent that they have. So you have to be able to read that and unleash it, and it can be magic. And it was. Now, we've talked a lot about the business success you've had. Before, uh, you've been here a while. I want to know what brought you to Bighorn. And as another part of that question... What were your first impressions of R.D. Hubbard? We're here, really, because another bump in the way. We had a friend, her name was Eileen, who was a single parent in Edmonton, who was a judge and a lovely woman, very fit. Uh, was uh, about 50 years old and got told she had pancreatic cancer and maybe five months to live. And my wife was a very good friend of Eileen's was wonderful in supporting her and going to MD Anderson and all over the place trying to support her while she was trying to work through this terrible challenge. And we rented a, a place at Mission Hill that year, um, hoping that Eileen would be able to come down after Christmas and spend a little time. And, and unfortunately, she died. And uh, so we were 
at the time, getting exposed to the valley through Renee and Daryl Cates, who had a long history in uh, in Palm Springs uh, from their childhood. We did we did not. So in January of that year, after Eileen passed, we Renee and Daryl were looking at Bighorn and or looking at everything. We looked at all of the different. Uh, clubs in the area and one day we were in the back seat of their car while they were driving around Big Bighorn and they were thinking to buy and Eileen had just died and you know Kathy and I looked at each other and said you know life's short you know we're not ready to be here yet but what the hell so we would you know Ren and Daryl bought us a lot and we bought a lot you know on the, on the fifth hole on the canyon side and never never built on it but that got us to Bighorn and then we uh we rented Kiva one year, and then we bought a place in Matati. We were there three years, and then we bought the place we are now. So we love it. But that's how we got here. It was another bump in the road that, uh, you know, we just sort of said, damn, the tor- torpedoes, it might not be the right time, but we're coming. So we came, and uh, we're very thankful. And first impressions of R.D.? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, in our travels, we belong to a lot of different clubs. And clubs are very difficult places. Governance of clubs is, you know, not an easy thing because you have so many different uh, personalities and agendas and uh, a lot of them don't work very good and uh, aren't overly successful because of all that. Well, (laughs) you know, RD, I I never had run into anything like it. You know, here's a fellow that... uh, yeah, it was uh, claimed to be the, the the top dog of the place, and and behaved as that, and uh, and and I think that's the only possible way to make these places run well is that you got to have someone who's got a vision, who's got the authority, and and you don't get mired in the in in the bureaucracy and the consensus building, and uh, and that works if the person is competent. And he, you know, I found out very quickly that uh, although he has his his strong personality traits, that he is very good for this place. You know, he what he does is for the benefit of the club and its membership. And uh, I think it speaks for itself. Uh, it's a very, very high quality, um, desirable place to be. And that's on him. Last question that I have for you. Um, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Ross Grieve today? Be open for life's uh, opportunity. And don't get off the couch. Try something. Get out there. Life's going to happen around you, and it's going to offer you uh, chances and have the courage to try something. If I had never moved from Winnipeg to Toronto that one time, I'd still probably be in Winnipeg. You know, God knows doing what or whatever, but my life would have been entirely different had I not started trying something new and seeing something new and seeing the world and seeing more of what the big, wonderful world's got to offer. So I would say to the young person out there, you know, let take advantage of life. Life can be wonderful, uh, but you've got to make it happen and take some chances. Don't get stuck in being overly comfortable and uh, risk-adverse. I don't think that that is really going to get you what you can get. Ross, I want to thank you. I know that quite often uh, people say, well, I don't have a story to tell or I've heard some of the other ones and I don't know about mine, but I have to say from our conversation today, it's, it was meaningful, it was honest, it was interesting, but I also think it's another one of these podcasts that people can learn from. And if they listen to this and and take away some of the life lessons that you've shared, I think they're going to be better for the experience. So thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks, Marty. And good for you to be uh, leading 
this program. Thank you, Ross. And this episode was brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their fascinating stories.